Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, folks. I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This episode, another in our series responding to COVID-19, was recorded on Friday the 3rd of April 2020. Polly Neat, Chief Executive of Shelter, explains why urgent action is needed to help those affected as the global health crisis meets an existing national crisis in housing and homelessness. I'm Polly Neat. I'm the Chief Executive of Shelter. Our purpose is to defend the right to a safe home and we do that with individuals. So we work 
with individuals to help them to find somewhere safe to live, to keep somewhere safe to live, to deal with issues that prevent them from having a safe home in the first place, whether those be their own issues in their own lives or much more commonly issues with the system that is making it very difficult for them to have somewhere safe to live for them and their families. We also work with communities, so we develop partnerships, we work with other local organisations and we work for change within local communities to benefit the people who seek our help. And then last but definitely not least, We work across society. So we take the problems that are coming to us from people who use our helpline, who come to our face-to-face services, and we use that evidence to influence policy and to campaign at a national level. And we have a really strong record of achieving change nationally, both by working with government and by campaigning. Okay, so you work across Great Britain. Is it sort of England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales? England and Scotland. England and Scotland. Okay, on a normal day, sort of pre-virus, how many individuals would you reach maybe in a year? In a year, millions. So we provide advice to millions of people via our website. We also, for tens of thousands of people, we provide advice on the telephone and through live web chat. And that's kind of the first port of call. Uh, And then we also help many thousands face to face as well. Um, And those are people who need more intensive help and support from one of our local services. So on a normal day uh, without COVID-19, we would be helping people both, as I said, kind of locally and also nationally. And of course, we would be campaigning anyway. So we are fighting very hard for uh, what people need now from the government in this public health crisis. But we were very much fighting for what people need in the housing crisis way before that. So what are you seeing at the moment? What's the sort of increase in demand for your services right now? At the moment, it's chaos out there. I've got to be honest. I don't know how else to put it, really. So we were already in a housing crisis that had reached what I would call emergency proportions. Um, So we were seeing uh, we had about 300,000 people homeless in England anyway. A lot of those, the ones we work with, kind of most often families in temporary accommodation, in bed and breakfasts, in hostels. Um, and those families now are very much, they're right in the epicentre, if you like, in the whirlwind, uh, caught between that housing crisis that already existed and the public health crisis that has now hit. So they are really at the very sharp end. And if you can imagine you know, families shouldn't be living in one room in a bed and breakfast for like a family of four with a shared kitchen and bathroom. That's not okay anyway, uh, especially for a long period of time. It's even more not okay when you're supposed to be social distancing. And if you're actually self-isolating or you're ill with COVID-19, it's actually impossible. It's a totally intolerable situation now that people are in. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you were on the news recently talking about this issue, obviously. What are people meant to do? Because I do realise that also councils simply aren't equipped to be able to provide the solutions, are they? So the problem is, as I said, we were in a housing crisis before all this happened. So uh, there is 
a dire lack of suitable permanent homes for people that they can actually afford to live in. That is the housing crisis. So we are not building social housing. And that is basically that's what the problem is. So clearly, because now we've got COVID-19, councils can't magic social housing out of thin air. Uh, That's absolutely right. So they are absolutely stuck between a rock and a hard place. What we're looking for is for the government to provide them with uh, guidance and funds to support families in the very short term intolerable situation they find themselves in. So, for example, where possible, they should be finding self-contained accommodation for homeless families. They shouldn't be sharing kitchen and bathrooms at this time. If they are in accommodation where there's, you know, if there's absolutely no choice about that, uh, then um, councils need to look at, for example, providing hot meals to families who are self-isolating so that they don't have to use shared kitchens. They should be looking at where possible again, there might be another room within the same property that a family could occupy so they could give themselves a bit more space, particularly if they actually have a family member who is ill with COVID-19 or, as I said, if they're self-isolating. So there are things councils could be doing. Um, I mean, the the most important thing is to find self-contained accommodation for families wherever it's at all possible. Uh, And if we can be requisitioning hotel rooms, for example, I mean, this shows the scale of the crisis. So I would not normally be saying a hotel room is appropriate accommodation for a family. Right. Mm. So it just shows where we are uh, that actually, you know, something self-contained for a lot of the families who are coming to us for help. They are in an absolute panic and they've got no options. Yeah, and we have seen throughout this crisis um, actually what people are capable of. And and it's amazing that, you know, the Nightingale Hospital has been built in such a short space of time. Yeah, um, well, exactly. So and, we are and, yeah. actually capable than we give ourselves credit for. I couldn't agree with that more. And actually, you know, I, I would like to see some attention. There's an enormous amount of money and uh, organisational power that has been put into aspects of this crisis. And I absolutely give credit to the government for that and to local councils and the charities that are involved in that. We're one of them. So absolutely, you know, rough sleeping is an example. Enormous effort has been put into trying to uh, help rough sleepers off the streets um, because that is clearly an extremely unsafe space for them to be in. And as you rightly say as well, some of the work that's happened in the NHS to kind of mobilise has been incredibly effective and impressive. What we need to see now is these homeless families on the receiving end of some of that really focused action and investment. You know, yes, action, but this stuff is costing money as well. And we do need to see some of that. And help me out with some of the terminology, which I sometimes get confused with your rough sleeper. So maybe the person who you see sitting by the ATM who does not have a roof over their head. And then mm. you people that you describe who are in hostels or refuges and so not in their own home. And I suppose that's temporary accommodation. So could you just help our listeners out a little bit with the different terminology and who's who in all of this? It is a bit of a difficult one actually because when the term homelessness is used 
often it is used interchangeably with what I would call rough sleeping or street homelessness. So homelessness as a kind of legal definition, if you like, includes nearly 300,000 people who do not have a home to call their own. So uh, they don't have any form of stable accommodation and they have been, um, in most cases, accepted as homeless by their local authority. Not in all cases, but in most cases. So they are legally homeless. Many of them are, um, unlike uh, people on the street, many of them are families and they simply cannot afford anywhere to live. So they can't afford to rent. There's no social housing available, pretty much. And they can't afford the private rented sector. So they are homeless. Many of them are working, by the way. Okay. Um, so uh, these families are, when I say homelessness, I'm including the, these people and also people who are sleeping rough and who are on the street. In terms of rough sleepers, roughly, there's about 5,000 rough sleepers. So they are uh, definitely um, a very specific group. They're a group with some very serious and specific needs, but they are the tip of the iceberg of homelessness. When the government talks about we're going to end homelessness within the par this parliament, uh, what they really mean is rough sleeping. I wish they meant, don't worry, I massively wish they meant we're going to end the whole of homelessness. But sadly, they don't mean that. What they mean is those 5,000 people, they hope, will no longer be on the street by the right, end of the, the people, parliament. The people they're not tripping over on their way to work because it's unsavory. Yeah. So you said that's then... your words. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, so you yeah, said 300,000 legally homeless and 5,000 rough sleepers, you know. Yes, roughly. Sort of roughly rough data. Yes. Yeah. And then intentionally homeless, what does that mean? So intentionally homeless is just a, a deeply damaging, in my view, category that is sometimes applied when people have nowhere to live. They apply to their council uh, as homeless and the council can can say it doesn't have a duty to house them because they are intentionally homeless. It's designed to catch people who have deliberately well, the theory is deliberately made themselves homeless in order to get a council flat. Now, that is okay. pretty laughable because there aren't any council housing, like council housing. Okay. Um, so just to give you some idea. So there's about one point. This is pre-COVID, obviously. There's about 1.1 million people on the waiting list for council housing. Oh, wow. And last year, yeah, and last year we built um, about 6,000 council houses. Right. So right. 1.1 million, 6,000. And if you count uh, demolitions, repurposing sales of council houses in the last year, there was actually a net loss of 17,000. OK, I'm not good at maths, but uh, I know that doesn't add up very well. No, it doesn't add up very well. So what intentional homeless, it's a category that can be applied by local authorities to say they don't owe a duty to house that person. What it can sometimes mean is that they should be housed by a different local authority. But I've also seen it applied in cases where, for example, women have fled domestic abuse and they're not believed that they've fled domestic abuse, so they're okay. then seen as being intentionally homeless. I mean, that's a bit critical of local authorities. So they're just applying the law. There is this category within the law. 
So, you know, whatever I think about it, it is the law. Um, but sometimes it is also misapplied to people who are in actually in really dire need so what about children what's the picture there because it's such an important uh, point I think you know I mm. guess a lot of people think of these adults on the street they think of adults mm. or drug addicts or women fleeing domestic violence but um, what's the picture with children well a lot of women fleeing domestic violence have children with them so that's um, important to say so legally if you are at risk of being on the street and you have children, um, the local authority has to find somewhere for the children to stay. You can't have, quite rightly, you can't have children sleeping rough on the street. Um, so in those instances, uh, a family usually would be put in what's called emergency accommodation. And that's where a lot of families actually find themselves in bed and breakfast and the kind of least suitable end of temporary accommodation. Um, a lot of those families are in emergency accommodation and they're being housed because there's a, a, a legal duty to house, to, to put children. Children have to have a roof over their head. You can't leave them without that, even if you think they're intentionally homeless, even if you don't believe their mother has fled domestic abuse. Um, whatever you have to find them somewhere so within the wider group of homeless people there are a large number of children so a lot of those people are families with children and is there a particular age group that you see or not is it sort of predominantly teenagers or is it just absolutely the the whole mix it's the whole mix um but we do see a lot of a lot of very young children um, I mean, the the group kind of particularly aff affected by the crisis around temporary accommodation is single mums with children. That's a, a lot of the people who come to us for support are single mothers and their children. Yeah. Is it rare um, to see a man turning up with sort of three small children or even one child? Is it rare? Well, I mean, it's it's so we see quite a few couples. Um, I mean, just with their like within the general population. So more than 90 percent of single parent families are headed by a woman. So that is reflected right across the population of single parent families. So in general, lone parents are women. But yes, there are a small number who are men. Absolutely. And we do sometimes see single men. In fact, um, I can think of a couple of very specific cases of homeless single parents that I that I know who are men. Um, but, you know, yeah, the vast majority of single parents in general are women. And that's also reflected among homeless people as well. Yeah. OK. And then to give the government credit, um, can you tell us what they have put in place or what they have done since the virus broke out? Because I know there's things like moratoriums on evictions, mortgage holidays. So what have they put in place? So the government have done a lot. And they absolutely do deserve credit for what they've done. You know, I mean, this is a absolutely horrendous situation that we find ourselves in as a country. And the more vulnerable you are, the worse it is. So I really want to see the government do something for families in temporary accommodation. And I think in terms of dealing with the housing impact of COVID-19, that is the next thing they need to do. Um, but they have done a lot already. So they've ended evictions, which is 
brilliant. So nobody will be evicted during this crisis or certainly not for three months. And, um, you know, they can extend it after that. And that's massive. Um, and they really do deserve congratulations for acting on that really quickly. Um, they've also put in place a lot of both money and also organisational resource to get rough sleepers off the streets during the crisis and into mainly hotels. So that also has been really impressive. They've acted on that very quickly and they're working with local authorities, with some fantastic local charities as well that are doing a lot to, as I say, to get rough sleepers into accommodation. So those are the main things that they've done. And actually also the mortgage holidays they've offered will help both in terms of preventing homelessness because people do lose their homes through, uh, obviously, homeowners lose their homes as well, but also landlords who have mortgages who may need a mortgage holiday who might otherwise um, pass their losses on to tenants and that then would have a, an impact on tenants. So again, that is also helping. So completely, the government have done a lot. They do need to do more, definitely. And I'm particularly, as I said before, thinking about very specifically families in temporary accommodation who are not in circumstances where it's possible to social distance, never mind self-isolate. They just are not in circumstances where they can do that. So that needs urgent attention from the government right now. And then when it comes to the rough sleepers who I imagine have more health problems than maybe in a temporary accommodation. And am I right in saying that there's quite a high rate of TB, tuberculosis amongst that group or has that changed? There is quite a high rate of um, respiratory conditions in general among people who are rough sleeping and other health issues, both physical and mental health issues. They're an extremely vulnerable group of people, yes. And and the government has recognised this. So um, that's part of the reason that they've acted, the government has acted so urgently and swiftly, which is great, mm-hmm. to um, help rough sleepers off the streets. That's It's really important. And it's not easy. If they're put into hotels, then who are the staff that look after them? Is it your staff? Yes. So we're supporting quite a few former rough sleepers, helping them, making sure they get food, making sure they have the support they need in order to stay where they are um, once they're off the streets. And there are lots of other charities as well who are doing this work around the country. So, yes, very often the people who are supporting them once they are in accommodation, are uh, charities, yeah. Okay. Well, before we draw this to a close, because these podcasts are meant to be short, because you've all got far more important things to be doing than talking to me um, on my podcast, (laughs) but I, I just want to ask you, as a chief executive of a large national charity, how you're coping and the sort of things that are keeping you awake at night, despite the important work you do on the front line. Well, first of all, to say um, I'm extremely lucky because nothing keeps me awake at night. So I'm quite a chilled out individual generally. Um, but but I guess apart from the frontline work that our staff are doing, um, which actually isn't worrying me, it's just making me feel quite humbled and proud all the time. And it 
really motivates me to try and do my best for them. So it's the needs of our staff, really. We have about 1,300 staff at Shelter and they're facing this the stress and challenge of their day-to-day work, which is extremely challenging. And also the stresses that all of us are facing at such a difficult time. So there's that. We're trying to work out the impact of the crisis on our income uh, and what we can do about that. So that is a challenge, I can't lie. And uh, I think it's a challenge that we at Shelter will absolutely be able to meet. Um, But I am concerned about the charity sector as a whole and particularly smaller, local, much more vulnerable charities who do vital work. I'm quite concerned about them and their future at this time because it is a really challenging time financially for charities. So our staff, I guess, just the the finances of the organisation and then um, some of the campaigning points that I talked about. You know, we are working really hard to influence the government at this time to do what we can see has to be done for the people that we work with. So a lot of my effort is going into that as well. Okay. And when it comes to sort of current funders or sort of potential future funders, what could your current funders be doing that might be helpful that they might not have been able to do under usual circumstances? Is there anything there? Yes. So a really great example is, you know, some of our corporate partners. So we are very lucky at Shelter to have some amazing corporate partners. Um, We've launched an emergency appeal and some of our corporate partners have donated us free um, advertising slots for our appeal because there's absolutely no way we can pay for TV advertising. So they've um, given us that. Um, People have been very flexible actually with how we use some of their funds so when we've said you know actually we can't do what you were originally funding us to do at this point in time but we're going to we think we need to do this instead is that okay and we've had an amazing response to that from corporates and also from trusts and foundations and also some of our local authority funders so trusts and foundations are a lot of them are now saying i'm hearing oh, right, all our funding now is going to be about the COVID, the recovery from COVID-19 and vulnerable groups affected by COVID-19. And what I would say to them is, uh, don't forget the organisations that you were funding or planning to fund who are still doing vital work. And that is vital work, whether you can put a COVID-19 label on it or not. So let's not all get too excited about, you know, oh, all our funding now needs to be about COVID-19. I mean, that's great on one level. And there may well be a case for creating special funds for that. But let's not forget that those charities that you were funding are doing vital work. It's vital now. It'll be vital after this crisis. It'll be vital for many years, unfortunately. So let, you know, so I would say a bit of Let's just take a step back and think. I guess that would be my message to funders, not so much about shelter, actually, but more widely within the sector. Uh, I do have some concerns about that. And individual donors, I would just say, frankly, uh, you know, we need your money. We need it more than ever. We really do need help. Uh, and the need for our services is is rocketing. Yeah. Yeah. And 
if listeners go to the shelter websites, it's very self-explanatory the ways that you can help. There's no shortage of clarity once exactly. you get on the website. You'll definitely no. see them as I did. You yeah. also have a helpline, don't you, which is important that yes, know about. Yes. So if you are worried about your home, uh, whether that be as a result of COVID-19, so about two thirds of the calls we're getting now are about directly about COVID-19. We are absolutely up to date with what your rights are right now. Uh, so your first port of call is our website. You can get advice on our website. You can get a live web chat from a trained um, specialist expert. Um, but also we do have a helpline as well for emergencies. So if you think you might be in danger of losing your home, then please call us because we can help. Polly, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.